Welcome back. Today we get to go over what I think is the best part of the plot, the story of the Bible. And so I'm super excited to just get to share with you uh, this section. To review, just before we jump into that, um, the purpose of humanity, as described in the beginning in Genesis, is to image God. Or another way to say that is to make God known. The problem is the disobedience of humanity, which leads to sin and death. We see um, in the last couple of times that Abraham's family is really important as somehow they will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. We have seen that the Mosaic covenant between God and the people of Israel, Abraham's people, cannot be upheld throughout the entire Old Testament. The people just cannot do it. We've also seen, if you remember, David has a kingly line that is very important as it will eventually provide some sort of Messiah or an anointed one who would save and perfectly rule his people. Now we arrive at the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels. We're back into an historical narrative section. So the timeline is now going to pick back up where we left off a couple times ago. And here's how they start. I just want to read a few lines from the beginning of the Gospels. I want you to think about some of why uh, these opening verses are so significant. Um, especially they would be significant to those who are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. So listen to how Matthew starts his book, the first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then the first verse of the Gospel of Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Christ, by the way, is the word in Greek for Messiah. This is the beginning of his story, his good news. Near the beginning of the gospel of Luke, we see that the angels tell the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Messiah Christ the Lord. And then he later goes on to describe, Luke does in Jesus' genealogy, it's traced back through David, through Abraham, and all the way back to Adam and even God. And then John, near the beginning of his gospel in John 1.18, says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. He's displayed him. So these first century writers that write about the life of Jesus are declaring something of huge, huge importance. And that's what we're going to look at today. This part of the plot must be important because we get four versions of it from four different people included in our Bible and the scriptures. In the Old Testament, if you remember, there's a little bit of overlap in the story. Mainly the, the chronicles kind of retell some of, a lot of what Samuel and the kings um, say there's some of the same stories. They have a little bit different perspective. But um, these events, the beginning of the New Testament, it's retold four times. And all four of those books are telling the life of one man, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but 
everything that happened uh, of all of it, of the, Jesus' 33 years on earth, about half of the content of these books is about just one week of Jesus' life. We call it the Passion Week. So it's kind of like the whole story of God, this massive story slows down here and almost just comes to like a slow motion. In the Old Testament, there's it goes through big chunks of history. It covers thousands of years. It moves right along through the story. Sometimes um, in a paragraph, it's mentioning the 40-year reign of a king or a judge. And um, even after the Old Testament, there's this huge gap of 400 years that isn't even addressed at all in the Bible. And of course, God was working in those times, but, but the Bible highlights the information that's necessary for us today. And the Gospels basically focus on just three years and especially one week, as I said, for one man. So it's really slowing down here and emphasizing something. Uh, there is a subgenre, you could say, by the way, of this historical narrative, and it's called gospel. Gospel just means a very important and a very good announcement. So this here, what we're talking about today, is the climax of the plot. We ended last time by saying something in the story needs to change. In order for God's purpose for humanity to be fulfilled, for, for humans to image, fill, and rule, there must be some solution to the problem of sin and death. And that solution, as we've seen in the pattern, isn't going to come from mankind. So who will break that pattern of failure? And this is where the change happens. This is the good news. And realize that uh, we've covered the first 75% of the Bible in four lessons, um, but it is thousands of years of history. So as we come to the climax of the story, it's actually even way more epic than it feels to us who have just gone through this in four weeks of coverage, right? This is after thousands of years of history and for the Jewish people, expectation, and now Jesus arrives on the scene. So let me just jump in and describe the quick um, uh, kind of main events of the what's described in the Gospels. First of all, Jesus, Jesus is introduced and he is born. And it's looking like the way the writers talk about it and the way the story unfolds that he could be and is the prophesied Messiah. Or he's the rescuer, he's the deliverer, the king of Israel. And we especially get that picture because of an interesting character named John the Baptist, who was a, a prophet. A lot of Jews were expecting the Messiah to be announced by a powerful preacher a forerunner to the Messiah. And he would be like the Old Testament prophet, Elijah. Um, interestingly, a, a few of these prophecies about John the Baptist come from right at the very end of our the way our Old Testament is laid out in the book of Malachi. It's kind of cool um, that they end by saying, hey, there's going to be this one announcing the, the coming of the Messiah. And then in the first couple chapters of the New Testament books, the gospel writers are saying, okay, here he is. This is the preacher announcing the Messiah. John the Baptist, and after being introduced to him, he announces Jesus, and Jesus as an adult then is tempted by the devil. And remember this, he doesn't give in to temptation of the devil. Okay, we'll come back to that. Then Jesus goes on in his life, and he does a ton of miracles. We're not going to talk about them, uh, don't have time. 
and he preaches lots of interesting things, which we're also not going to talk much about that. <laughs> Miracles. He demonstrates his power over sickness, over demons, over nature itself, even over death. In his preaching, he talks about things about like how the kingdom of God has arrived. He seems to be reinterpreting the Mosaic Covenant. He's making claims that God's his father. And he's making claims even that it seems he's tying himself into the God of the Old Testament with statements saying, I am he. So people have very mixed reactions we see in the Gospels to Jesus. Some people follow him, his disciples, because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're saying, you are our hope. You're the long-awaited one. And we believe and give our allegiance to you. But some, on the other hand, reject him, um, mainly because Jesus isn't the type of Messiah that they wanted. He was, he was meek, and he wasn't the military leader they were expecting, and he wasn't speaking out against all the other nations, and he was calling himself God, and people didn't like these things. And all of that tension, especially with the Jewish religious leaders, leads to this decision to seek to kill Jesus. And so then we go into that really slow motion highlighted portion of the Gospels, the Passion Week. Everything slows down. Something monumental here is happening. And we see the arrest of Jesus. We see his crucifixion where he's killed on a cross. And then we see him buried in the ground. But then, and all the Gospels describe this, the miracle of all miracles. After three days, Jesus raises from the dead and he appears to people. Okay. Now, again, this is historical narrative, and we aren't given any reason to believe that the gospel writers aren't telling us anything else except what has actually historically happened. Okay, So um, many people aren't going to believe that that happened, along with all the other miracles that happened in the Bible. But we have four accounts uh, here, plus some additional letters later on that claim that it did happen. And Christians, as Christians, we believe. Now, there is so much significance wrapped up into those main events. I struggled to, um, to, to try to even summarize what was happening in the life of Jesus and in his death and his resurrection. Um, but I think it might be easiest in the way that we've been going through the whole Bible. It might be easiest to describe those significances uh, in terms of the covenants. Okay, so walk with me on this. Remember the Mosaic covenant, okay? The agreement between God and the people of Israel where he says, you will be blessed if you obey these commands, and you will be cursed if you disobey. And we saw that since they all had a hereditary habit of disobedience, um, baked into the Mosaic Covenant was this gracious kind of sin and death management system that would atone for the disobedience that they were absolutely going to do, and it would allow for them, the Israelites, to still maintain the blessing of being near God. And that was the that system where, where the ceremonial kind of rituals and like the blood uh, sacrifice of the animals. But still, disobedience was the trajectory until this Jew or Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see in his life that he perfectly upheld the law. He's the first person ever to do so. He was obedient to God in every way. Another way to say it is he committed no sin. And that had never happened before in the history of mankind. 
But why then did that path of obedience take him to death? Because remember, disobedience leads to cursing and eventually death. But obedience is supposed to lead to life, right? So here's God's beautiful plan. Theologians call it the substitutionary atonement. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the consequences of sin, the sin of the people, was placed on animals instead. And the animals were killed. For example, a lamb, who is an innocent party, right, uh, hadn't done anything wrong, died in the place of somebody who otherwise would have to pay for their own sin. So it was blood for blood in a way, right? Well, Jesus died to be the sacrifice for sins. And because he had perfectly upheld the law, he wasn't paying for his own sins, but his blood atones for the sins of others. That's why Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to pay the price for others. The perfect one did this. So then if you think about the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, remember Deuteronomy 28 through 30, by his death, Jesus absorbed the curses that should be placed on the disobedient, ultimately death. Um, Galatians says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And by his life, Jesus accomplished for God's people the righteousness that the law demanded so that they might get the blessings. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, and then get those blessings of God. So substitution, blood for blood, and in this case now, perfect for the imperfect. By the way, our P word for this week, our title is perfect. As we see here, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses. Christ is the fulfillment, you could say, of the Mosaic Covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Remember that? God promises Abraham, you're going to have a big family, a nation. I'm going to give you a land, and in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, listen to what the writers of the New Testament say. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, the Abrahamic covenant. Then Paul says, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, Paul says. When God promised Abraham in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed, he's talking about preeminently Christ, who the gospel writers have already made it clear in the genealogies, he's legitimately Abraham's offspring, right? All the nations of the earth then will be blessed through Jesus. And in Jesus, we find out in the New Testament, the door to salvation and to be a part of his family is swung wide open, not only to the people of Israel, but to all people, people of all nations. They are blessed in Jesus. What about the other promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the great nation, the land? Those had kind of a partial fulfillment, it seems, in Abraham's biological people, the Israelites. They became huge, a huge nation, millions of people. And for a time, they were given the land of Canaan. But listen to what else Paul says in the book of Galatians. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Earlier in Galatians 3, know then that it is those who are of faith who are of the sons of Abraham. So those who follow in the spiritual lineage of Jesus through faith, 
they become, we become part of Abraham's family. So Abraham's promised family or nation is, you could say, even much larger than the Jews expected. And regarding the land promise, there's a lot of different uh, Christian views on this. And it is likely, I think, that the land promise to God's people is even much larger than the territory of Canaan that they kind of expected. But it is a, a heavenly land, like Hebrews eleven six 6 says. And accordingly, I, I would say the entirety of the new earth will be the promised land, which we'll talk about when we get to the final part of the plot. So Christ fulfills the promises of land, people, and the blessing of of all the nations. Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, quickly, the Davidic covenant. What was, what was that promise? Second Samuel 7, 16, God promised that David would have a, uh, there would be a future king from his line with a throne that would be established forever. And hundreds of years later, an angel comes to this virgin named Mary and tells her that she will bear a son, Jesus, and listen to what the angel says, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus is the rightful and forever king promised to God's people. And he would reign literally forever because Unlike every other king, his flesh did not see corruption, but he was resurrected. So now he reigns forever. So Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Well, there's another promise made, if you remember, way back in the beginning of the story. I wouldn't call it a covenant, but it's a promise by God. I brought it up several times, and it's a promise really made to the devil. Um, Genesis 3.15, God says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, which means, as we've talked about, the devil would harm one of the offspring of Eve, but that offspring would then fatally wound the devil. Now listen to what the New Testament says about Jesus. The, the Gospel of Luke traces the ancestors of Jesus all the way back to Adam. So Jesus is the offspring of Adam and Eve. And then in Hebrews 2.14, we read, Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Another promise, maybe the most significant, fulfilled in Christ. So do you see how these... Um, promises that, that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. He's the fulfillment of the law of Moses, perfectly keeping it and, and paying for it. He's the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised offspring of David, the promised offspring of Eve. So everything culminates in Christ. As Paul says, I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Jesus, presented in the Gospels, is the long-anticipated, after thousands of years, anointed one, or the Messiah, which is why he's called Jesus the Christ, or Messiah, anointed. All the promises of God find their yes in him. So here's where the story 
uh, comes together. Okay, follow me on this. God's created purpose for Adam and Eve was to display the image of God. But problem, they gave into the temptation of the devil and sinned and didn't display the image. And we see that problem of death and that pattern of failure throughout the entire Old Testament. But here in the story, at the beginning of the New Testament, the one who Paul calls the second Adam does not give in to the temptation of the devil and later destroys the work of the devil. And he breaks the pattern of disobedience by accomplishing what no one else could do, by keeping the covenant, by remaining obedient to God. So this person is described, of course, as the perfect image of God. Listen to the declarations of the New Testament writers. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's the image. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And listen, the exact imprint of his nature. That's image language. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he's talking about Jesus, he has made him known. He's shown who God is. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Christ is the image of God. So the first Adam had failed his purpose to be the image of God, along with all of his human-only descendants. The second Adam, Jesus, succeeded in that image and was that very image of God. Well, how, we might ask, did he accomplish that? How did he accomplish something that no other human being could accomplish? Remember, we ended the last time by saying, hey, something needs to change. Well, what was that change? Why, why was Jesus different than anybody else? And the gospel writers, again, if you read through their accounts, they show that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the promises, but that he is the son of God. He is even God himself, right? That's what John says. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was God. And if you read the gospels, you'll begin to see clearly he is God. That's what he is revealing to people through his preaching. That is what he is revealing to people through his miracles. Only God can do these things. It's what the gospel writers are trying to emphasize. The beginning of Mark 1.1, I read it before. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And at the end of the book of John, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. That's how he is able to accomplish what he accomplished. So this is a story about a savior, king, a messiah, who is God. He is the one who fulfills the promises. He is the one who fixes the problem. And the whole story thus far, the first three-fourths of the Bible, has been pointing forward toward this climax, the gospel, this very important, very good announcement. 
If you look into all of the symbolism of the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrificial system, they were like shadows, Hebrews says, of the more true form of these realities, which are realized in Christ. Jesus even said that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, those things were written concerning himself in Luke 24, 27. So Jesus and what he accomplished is what the entire Old Testament points forward to. The Gospels here slow down in slow motion and highlight, and as we'll see, the rest of the story kind of refers back to. So how does that affect us? As I said in the first lesson, I believe that this is a story about God and his relationship with mankind. It's not just a story about, look what God did, but it's how he relates to us. So how, where does that leave us? Well, um, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 10 as we kind of finish up here. Hebrews 10. At the end of our last lesson, I read from the prophet Jeremiah who said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like the Mosaic covenant, my covenant that they broke. So he's, he's saying it's not like the covenant that was atoned for, that atoned for sin by the blood sacrifice of animals and all that stuff. But Jesus, as prophesied, enacted a new covenant. That new covenant we talk about every Sunday. He took bread and then a cup. And after they'd eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. And this is a better and more full and final covenant than the last, the Mosaic. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, uh, starting in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. The effectiveness of the Old Testament sacrificial system was limited. It was kind of a temporary fix to ongoing perpetual sin. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, his own death, the shedding of his own blood, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He sat down just means he, he, he was finished with that work. This was the final blood sacrifice which all the former had pointed to. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's sacrifice is qualitatively different than those under the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, he's quoting Jeremiah, what we read, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, the new covenant is not dependent upon man's ability to accomplish anything. It works 
because it's dependent upon Jesus, who is God, who, unlike Israel and us, is perfect and doesn't break his promises. So you don't need another sacrifice. You don't need another redo when it has been done once and for all by Jesus. This is the new covenant. So where does that leave us in the story? Well, we have someone who has fulfilled what humanity couldn't fulfill. And through his death, we have a way to be completely forgiven of our sin. A new covenant that doesn't depend on our works and our willpower and our empty promises. And we have a leader, a king, a messiah to look to as an example of perfectly bearing the image of God. So what's next? Is the story done at this point? Do we just say, okay, then heaven happens? I still have a lot more questions at this point in the story that I think sometimes we fail to ask and we forget about some of the important things set forth throughout the story so far, especially in the purpose. So, so how do we enter that covenant with God, right? And at this point, if you get to the end of the Gospels, the disciples of Jesus have been just as full of failure as the Old Testament people of God, right? They're not effectively bearing the image of God. And so we might still be asking, well, how will God fulfill his created purposes for mankind? Remember, he, he didn't just create them to, just to forgive their sins. Um, and yes, Jesus accomplished what we were supposed to, but he's man and God, but as humans, we're not God. So what's to keep us then from becoming the same person as Adam again? And starting it all over again. And what about the creation mandate to fill and rule the earth that he gives to humankind? Those questions, to some extent, are still unanswered at the end of the Gospels. And so we take the rest of the story to understand those things. And just as I've done before, I want to just end by foreshadowing the, the answer to some of those questions. I'll read from Ezekiel again, which I ended last week or last time with, with reading this. When Jesus is, or I'm sorry, God through Ezekiel is, is saying, uh, he, he's talking about this new arrangement that he will have with humankind, this new covenant. He says this in Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That was Ezekiel. And then listen to what Jesus says in the New Testament. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will. And then he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Under this new covenant, there is something that God is going to do to his people that changes their trajectory of failure and enables them to live out their created purpose to image, fill, and rule like they never have before. So stay tuned. <laughs>